All right, if you would please open to 1 Timothy. We're going to look at another two verses this morning, but I promise we will not be looking at two verses at a time throughout this letter. We will take bigger chunks, but it's important for us to uh, see how Paul is setting up what he's doing in addressing Timothy to address the church in Ephesus. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul says, I urge, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Lord, we need your, your power the power of your Spirit's illumination to be upon us. Most importantly, Father, we ask that we would have your heart to your church. Because, God, what you wrote centuries ago, you still have your church walking in because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, Lord, we ask that you would help us as, we, as we're prone to wander. We know you, you want to keep us on course. And there's a course and a path for your church to walk out that we want to walk in the blessing of, and obey in seeking the conclusion of advancing your kingdom so Jesus returns in glory. So bless our time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There is always a quest for novelty. I think a quick sur a survey of any segment of television and, and channels will reveal several quests for novelty. My family... We like those shows, uh, America's Got Talent, Quest for Novelty. And the more bizarre, the more intriguing the storyline, mass singer and dancer, outrageous acts of science, Chopped. Ever watch Chopped? What bizarre things in that basket? What novel things in that basket? Seems that Eric Overe is always in a basket somewhere, every other episode. But people want something new. We get bored with stuff. And so what entertainment does is say, all right, we're going to try to give people uh, what, what routine is, we're bored with routine, we're, we're bored with people. They <laughs> say, let's give new things. Let's give novel things. But what happens in any quest for novelty is diminishing returns. You don't have the same satisfaction as you used to have when you watched it originally. Uh, when children say, again, 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 again gets a little annoying, doesn't it? Because we want to move on to something else. But why do they say again? Because they don't have life experience like we do of other things that they know. You just, just wait, kid. You won't like that in a few years. They don't have that yet. And so the joy that they experience within an experience, they, they want to have that. And they want, it, they want it firing again. Where our synapses and our brains are dulled because of everything that we have experienced in life. Now, the Christian is not immune from looking and desiring novelty. The church in Ephesus was not immune to it either. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to correct false teachers. That's a big task. But the fault, he's directing, he's correcting rather, false teachers because they were distracting people from the core elements of the gospel message. The church wanted something fresh, something new. 
while still seeking to align themselves with the gospel, but they're thinking, well, what else can we give people? Well, but in doing that, they had wandered from the very gospel that they were to be maintaining. The church is the collection of God's redeemed who are being sanctified. We are being made like Jesus, more and more like Jesus every day in our, in our lives, in, in our thoughts, in our actions. We want to be holy like Jesus. And the redeemed stand in righteousness before God positionally. Nobody can ever take that away. The devil himself cannot tell us to get out of God's presence. If we have trusted Christ for salvation, we stand before his presence for all eternity. Nobody can kick us out. Not even the devil himself. But God has that, has us there positionally. But still, in our lives, we're doing the work. We're doing the work, the practical work of righteousness. We're becoming more and more like Jesus every day. This means the church is made up of people prone to wander. Prone to wander looking for something novel, something new, something fresh, some different perspective that will help, help them along in their Christian life. But when that happens, we end up wandering from the faith without even realizing it. We wander when we feel like the old, old story has lost an edge. It doesn't. It doesn't penetrate us like it used to. We feel like we, we know the story of Jesus pretty well. And now we just need, something div- we need something different, a new approach to fuel our devotion to God. The story of Jesus becomes familiar. So we look for something new to sustain our walk with God. And listen, pastors, elders, teachers in the church are especially prone to this. Paul is told to correct the false teachers, probably elders in the church. That's a tall task for this man. But as pastors, there is a, I feel this, there is a constant nag that I'm just not interesting enough. Like I would put myself to sleep if I listened to myself long enough. Can you, can you say something fruitful at all, Jeff? Can you just help people? I've watched and heard of other pastors. uh, They justify avoiding doctrine in their sermons because it it doesn't help people during the week. Just trying to help people along during the week. God, just just give me something that's going to be helping me. That's the very thing Paul's telling Timothy to not let the elders and the teachers do. The pastors and people, we become convinced that doctrine is for smart people, not the normal Christian. People don't need to know how many angels can stand on the head of a pen or dance on the head of a pen. That's for all the theologians in the seminaries. Just give me something that'll last this week because I'm, I'm tired and I'm weary and I need something from God to fuel it, to get me through. So we think that doctrine is for a different category, and we, we need more practical things. But Paul is telling Timothy, all the practicalness, the practicalities, and the, the, the nuggets that we need to get through life, they're all found in the same doctrine, the same contours of the gospel. And we never, ever plumb the depths of the glorious gospel. So here is our 
But Paul's reminding Timothy to remind the elders to stay true to the doctrine, which is the gospel itself. Here's our main point this morning. We, as the church, as the collection of God's redeemed, we are called to preserve the contours of the gospel so as to ensure pure devotion. Now, as we'll look through this, I think um, what we find in here is we're, we're not, Paul's telling Timothy to tell the teachers not to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, speculations, and then later on in verses uh, 6 and 7, we, we have them wandering, making confident assertions, vain discussion in verse 6. I think what we look at is, one, the misplaced devotion that the teachers were causing in the church, and how, how we, in, in our context, in the American church, some, some myths, I think, that we can pursue if we're not careful. But then look at what, the, what doctrine really is. What does it mean? To, what's the place of doctrine? What does it mean? Pursue doctrine, study it, and then we'll look at the fruit of doctrine. What Paul is seeking to encourage Timothy to do is tell the church, tell the leaders, you, you have, you've gotten the church to put their devotion in the wrong thing. There's a misplaced devotion. The desire that causes the drift surfaces in each generation and in each season of the church, particularly within the pandemic. This is rampant. The desire, the drift, the preoccupation with myths and conspiracy theories. We'll get to those in a second. It seems to have been a particular issue in the church in Ephesus. Paul even prophesied in Acts chapter 20, the last time he's seeing the, the uh, Ephesian elders, he prophesied to them and he says this in Acts 20 verses 29 and 30. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. How's that for a parting gift? Paul, thanks so much for starting the church, and we love you so much. I love you. Preserve the gospel, and oh, some of you standing right here, you're going to become an enemy of the gospel, and you don't even know it. He prophesies this, and this letter is addressed to those false teachers that have latched on to something uh, from within the church and gathered people around them in the church. We have false teachings and false teachers in the American church today. Thankfully, Lord, by God's grace, I believe we don't have them here specifically. But what happens as these false teachings find their way because of our, our access to teaching, our access to preachers, our access to everything technologically, these things can infiltrate and we don't even realize them. We have myths, endless genealogies, speculations, vain discussion, and confident assertions going on. So I'll address a few here. The first, and I think this is a, a huge attack upon the church, but also uh, particularly from a, a huge swath of false teachers in the church, and it's an overrealized eschatology. Eschatology means the study of last things, study of the end, when Jesus returns, the end times. What we are promised in the gospel is that when we trust Christ in faith and we are then positionally justified, nobody can tell us to leave God's presence. Heaven awaits us at the consummation of the ages when Jesus comes back. Heaven awaits us. 
Several years ago, there was a teaching that caught on that, hey, if heaven is for us, then why not have heaven right now? And so if you have enough faith, you can get all of the blessings of heaven in your life right now. So you're going to be kings and queens in heaven. If we have enough faith, we can be kings and queens today in our lives. And God will give that to us. That's over-realized. Those things are true in heaven, but they're not true for everybody walking out the Christian life. We, we can't have enough faith to not get sick. Because let's follow that to the logical conclusion. If we can have faith to never get sick, then we'll never die. We cannot have faith to make us rich. Believe me, I've tried. Like, Lord, waiting for some numbers to play that jackpot. Waiting. No, you. Well, my wife said no. I have not prayed that, but I'm like, I can't think of how to spend $500 million, and I give it away a lot. Bless everybody in my life. Listen, when we, look at, when we look at Hebrews chapter 11, we do see the people who are the conquerors. They have shut the mouths of lions. And they have, they, they have uh, uh, and we hear stories within the church that, that, that God uses people to overcome particular situations. But right after that, all those glorious, victorious, conquering examples, you know right under that? Some were sawn in two. And we're told the person who was sawn in two had the exact same faith as the guy who shut the mouths of the lions. They were devoured by animals. And same faith. But what this has done is within the church, there's this weird feeling like if I can believe it enough, God will come through for me. That's not the basis on how God's work. It's against the gospel because the gospel says it's not by works that you're blessed. But when we have enough faith, we make faith a work. If I can get to enough degree of faith, then I can be blessed by that. That's a moralism that God just does not operate by. We do have everything that Jesus is. But we have, we have it as the foretaste of what we'll experience later on. We have it as the foretaste and the, the desire to say, oh, one day, what a day that will be. But that's going to be a day because we see Jesus face to face. I think it's a misapplied, overrealized eschatology leads to a misapplied faith. But it also leads to this concept, and I've heard this through the years and it saddens me, um, that, that God wants happiness for us no matter what the cost. And the phrase usually comes out with, God just wants me to be happy, right? It's a dangerous concept. Yes, he wants you to be happy, but our definition of happy usually comes in, God, give me the comforts and the ease and the control of my life, the significance that I'm searching. Give me the things I'm looking at that will make me feel happy. And God says, I will give you a happiness and a joy that you can never, ever get to the bottom of. And he'll give it to you while you're suffering and fighting cancer. 
and the death of a loved one. That's where God shows up with that kind of joy, and it makes the world, their heads spin, because they say, how in the world can you walk through that? Because my God is big, and he's in me. And it's a, it's a ballast in my soul that's connected to him. So I know that all, even, even if the, all the earth give way, he is all my hope and stay. That's a joy. That's a joy concept and feeling. But we, sadly, we see the happiness at all costs show up in relationships where Christians justify divorce because God just wants me to be happy and this scumbag just doesn't make me happy anymore. It's not a biblical concept. Another one, uh, less somewhat, but, but this, it surfaces. Uh, the, the quest for the, to figure out the hidden signs of Christ's return. And boy, the pandemic gave us a lot of those. But every time there's a hurricane, you're going to hear somebody that, that figures out all of these verses correspond to the day. I remember when Harvey hit Houston a few years ago, it was... Um, it was on a particular date in August, and you can look at Luke, and then these other two dates, and you look, and it's all the rumors of wars and storms and stuff. And I remember uh, over at North Lake in the, the Bible class that I teach, the kids were freaking out. Pastor Jeff, this is the end of the world. Can you believe this is the end of the world? And so I went along with them a little bit, and I said, do you know what else? I think Jesus is going to return on Rosh Hashanah. Like, what? Like, it's the Feast of Trumpets. The only, it's the only, uh, I, what I see, it's the only feast of the Old Testament ones that God put in place that hasn't been fulfilled yet. And with a loud trumpet blast, he's going to return. So I think he's going to return on Rosh Hashanah. You know when that is? They're like, when? It's in September. It's like three weeks away. They were free. I had one girl crying. <laughs> I did feel bad about that. But you get all this numerology stuff going on, and people are figuring out. And years ago, there's a book called Blood Moons, and man, this is all kind of Jesus returning. Mm -hmm. Now look, I'm all about looking for. We're supposed to recognize. You said you're supposed to see the signs and understand the Son of Man's returning. But it's the response of Christians that bothers me, because the response of Christians is this. Uh huh. I knew it. And they're not telling anybody about Jesus. You know what? If we really do know that Jesus is coming back, our best response is to tell everybody we know that he's coming and he wants them to be saved. But it's this weird, it's a weird Gnosticism. Like we have this weird knowledge. And yet mm -hmm, we're in the know. Jesus he told me something. I, I really think he's coming. Mm, this is really happening. Mm -hmm. But we don't see. Look, if, if we really think about it, Jesus' return means that millions, billions of people spend an eternity apart from him in hell. In utter and complete torment as he pours out his wrath upon sinners who refused to repent and trust him. It should break our hearts, not raise our noses as if we know something special that the world hasn't figured out. 
It should bother us. Conspiracy theories. Pandemic brought these out. Uh, and I, I tried last year, and we've marked a year since the pandemic started. Well, the first about, about four to eight weeks in there, I was getting messages from all kinds of people like, oh, 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 you've got to watch this. You've got to watch this. You've got to watch that. And I did. And sometimes I was taking two hours out of my day to watch some preacher somewhere give this, oh, we know what's happening. Because I wanted to be able to interact with people on that. But this is where the, cons- the two conspiracy theories that I ran into were this. One, the deep state. That there are individuals underneath everything that are ruling it all. I agree with that. But remember who the individual is. The devil himself. Is there a deep state conspiracy to overthrow the church? Absolutely. Since the beginning of the church, Jesus, it's Satan tried to kill Jesus himself on numerous occasions with storms. Jesus had to wake up, rebuke everything. The devil wanted him dead and not go through with the cross. But we, we put too much power in people by acting as if they're the ones. The devil has influence over people, but the devil's running the show in the battle that we feel, but we have the victory. The other one is this, that the source of COVID was the 5G towers going up. Weirdly enough, 5G towers started going up in Wuhan, China. That's bizarre. But are we really getting sick because of all the Signals that are going on? I don't know. Sometimes I can think, well, maybe so. Other times, like, eh, that's kind of ridiculous. Here's the thing. If we get preoccupied with this, we're not walking out the mission that God's called us to walk out. Love one another and love his people uh, and love other people to into the gospel. They become, they, they have us misplace our devotion and our faith. The final one I'd like to address for us is the, I think it's a false teaching that has ground, the groundswell of it, I think, has really increased um, as a result of the presidential election. I think the false teaching is that the United States is the hope of Christianity in the world. That if the United States doesn't protect the church, the church is finished. And the United States becomes the the protector and provider of the church to ensure that the gospel goes forward. I think it's a false teaching. I love this country. I've said that numerous times. And I think there's a role for the church to play in making sure that we still can have the freedom of worship. But that means that we fight for everybody's freedom to worship. For the Muslim, the Hindu, everybody to ensure that we can worship our Savior freely. That we want, yes, we want to continue to pray for that and seek that end. But the United States, God has not made a covenant with the United States to make sure, like, hey, the church is going to protect the truth, but I need the United States to protect the church to protect the truth. God doesn't, he's, he hasn't done that. 
And we get in this weird, I saw some prophecies after the presidential election, where it was, all of this, all right, we have to stand up um, to, for, to, to tell the United States to protect the church. And years ago, uh, the book The Harbinger, Harbinger came out, and that, it had this little ring of, hey, if the United States doesn't protect the church, if we don't have the right people in power to protect the church, then that's it for the gospel. And that's just wrong. God preserves the gospel, and he's been doing a lot longer since the United States has been in existence. And his promise is this, the gates of hell will not prevail. Sorry, I got a little loud on that one. A little <laughs> reverb, emphasis. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. We trust God for his church. And we walk out whatever he's calling us to walk in because we trust he is the powerful one. And he's more powerful than the United States of America. Praise God. He is more powerful than the United States of America. And we get to walk. And we're going to, chapter 2 helps us out. Got to pray for people in power. Yeah, we have to do that. Who are we as citizens of heaven within uh, citizenship in the United States? We're going to get to that. But political activism will not preserve Christianity. God protects his church. And we trust that. So what is the place of doctrine? The doctrine, doctrine itself refers to what Christians believe about any given subject that the Bible and the entirety of the Bible talks about. Where the Bible is clear across the scope, Genesis to Revelation, we want to hold those to be true. Where the Bible doesn't necessarily have a lot to say about a particular topic, we hold those lighter. Is God revealing to us what he wants us to be the primary emphasis as we walk out life? Now, as you might have heard the term systematic theology, systematic theology is a collection of doctrines that the Bible talks about. When we have different doctrines, it obscures the glory of Jesus within salvation. That's what the, the teachers were doing in Ephesus. They, they are obscuring, they're bringing in something different, even if they're trying to uphold the gospel and bring something, something fresh and new, a new perspective. They, they weren't highlighting the exaltation of glory in salvation, uh, the glory of Jesus in salvation. First century church, several, uh, within the first few centuries of the church, they had many different doctrines that were coming in, particularly about Jesus, and I think that's where doctrine comes in. The devil wants to convince us to get our gaze off of Jesus. You know, Gnosticism, where it was, it was a dualism that uh, was within Gnosticism, that you can have a higher knowledge and escape the body. It was a dualism between body and spirit that we don't have in Scripture. But that leads to the Arian controversy where they were discussing, was Jesus really God? Because within this dual nature, and we have dualism, all over culture today. I can't get into that right now. But we, I could, you'd just be here for a very long time. I love you too much for that because I really would put you to sleep probably. Uh, Arian controversy, is Jesus really God? They settle. No, he is God. Then we have the Pelagian controversy. Was he really sinless? How could he really be sinless? And where does his, his sinlessness come from? And as a result of these, the church came together with clarity and unity, uh, uh, these attacks on Jesus, and that's where the early church creeds came from. They wrote it down in a statement. Here's what we believe, and everybody would say, oh, I believe that too. 
What the statements tried to do was major on the major things. We need to understand what doctrines are non-negotiable and which ones are matters of perspective. Too often Christians major on minors and break fellowship with one another when it really isn't necessary. There are levels of importance based on revelation in Scripture. And we need to know what hills to die on. But when it comes to doctrine, we need to know what is essential, what's non-essential. And we must ensure that our devotion to non-essential doctrines doesn't overcome our commitment to the essential doctrines. We see that happen. Where somebody takes their devotion to a a non-essential doctrine and they see all the essential doctrines based out of that perspective and then it becomes the primary thing and, and they will not fellowship with other people unless you agree with them first. When we major on minors, when we make mountains out of molehills, fellowship suffers because our perspective becomes the red light or green light on whether we're going to go forward in the body of Christ with you. We want to strive for clarity. We want to strive for solidarity on essential doctrines, and we're led by grace and understanding with non-essential doctrines. Kevin DeYoung helps understand the essential and non-essential. Kevin DeYoung's a pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina. He said, some doctrinal disputes are worth dying for. Others are just dumb. I like how he says that. We should steer, steer clear of theological wrangling that is speculative, meaning it goes beyond Scripture. Vain, more about being right than being helpful. Endless, no real answer is possible or desired. And needless, mere semantics. But here's the question. How do you know what's essential and what's non-essential? Okay, I won't pay so much attention or, or uh, wrap myself around the non-essentials. I want to wrap myself and gird myself with the essentials. How do we know the difference? I'm trying to keep this as practically attainable as possible because it's, as I'm doing this, the list grows and grows and grows and there's qualifiers and stuff. But here, essential doctrines pertain to salvation. Those are the essential doctrines. Salvation that is secured by faith in Christ alone, sustained by grace and not works, and shining with holy light for all eternity. Essential doctrines for salvation. What are our primary doctrines? They're actually in our statement of faith and extrapolate a little more in our church covenant. Our first essential doctrine is scripture. We stand on the authority of Scripture, it is the final word. Where it's clear, we want to be clear. Where it's bold, we want to be bold. And we stand on that because when we get, when we get a little off on Scripture, then you get liberal Protestant denominations that think the, the Scripture is just maybe just possibly a good idea, hopefully, one day, but really aren't authoritative for the life of a believer. Our major... Doctrine is God. God as Trinitarian. He is Father. He is Son. He is Spirit. And how these work and correspond to one another is what we get. There's the contours of the gospel. And then salvation is a prime, very prime doctrine. Salvation, that is from faith in Christ, a repentance from sin. We value discipleship. That's a core 
uh, doctrine for us, that we are to grow in holiness. The word for that is sanctification. And we are to be empowered for mission. There's a discipleship where we become more like Jesus, and then we go out and shine for him and tell other people about him uh, through the Spirit's empowering. And then it's the doctrine of the church, that we are, we hold this uh, as a value. We're to gather together. We are to uh, have the sacraments, the ordinances of the church with communion and baptism, and the church as uh, what God is doing to bring his people together and the consummation of Jesus coming back for his church, his bride. We hold those as dear. Now, secondary doctrines are the varying ways that these major doctrines are applied and walked out. Essential doctrines, salvation. Who is God? Who is Jesus? How am I saved? What's God going to do with me once he's got me? Secondary is how do, we, how do we walk these out? Primary doctrines are necessary to produce faith. Secondary doctrines are necessary to grow our faith. There are different ways, different ways and convictions that we use to grow in faith. Uh, uh, some examples of secondary doctrines. Baptism. Is baptism, uh, can you baptize children? Or is it adults after express, uh, confession of faith? Do you dunk? Do you sprinkle? How do you walk that out? That's secondary. We have an opinion about that. We believe from the scriptures that we are doing that, but I, don't, I wouldn't break fellowship with a Presbyterian who's with, with me on salvation and the work of Jesus, but believes in infant baptism. The, ret the return of Christ. This is... I've got to tease this one out a little bit. Our, millennial, uh, uh, our views of the millennium which come from a few sections in Scripture, I've watched people's view of the millennium undo salvation core values and they won't fellowship with other people that believe that. But you, you don't think Jesus is coming back before the millennium? You think he's coming back after? Or you think the millennium's already happening? Yeah, I just confused you, didn't I? I'm not doing anything with it. Let it sit. There are different perspectives from very well-respected people, guys that I admire. I, I watched a debate about this. It was a two-hour debate. Guys that I respect highly have different opinions on the return of Christ. Where we all agree, it's on Jesus. Church meetings, a style of worship, multiple gatherings. Uh, do we have a contemporary? Do we have an old school where it's just hymns? Different things are happening. Secondary doctrine about Sabbath rest. I had an email to the church a few weeks ago asking our opinion on Sabbath rest. And I knew where the person was coming from because there's this weird groundswell uh, within the church community, this different perspective on the Sabbath that you have to go back and really do Saturday Sabbath like it was originally prescribed by God in the Old Testament. But, and by doing that, that's the key to becoming holy like Jesus and also the key for God to bring you to heaven. That's not where I see that in Scripture. But this person had elevated it to the point of, if you don't see where I am on Sabbath, I don't think I need to go. That happens with spiritual gifts too. Where are you with spiritual gifts and the spirit empowering and uh, the gifts... Uh, of prophecy and speaking in tongues, and uh, where, where do you stand on that? It's a secondary doctrine. 
That should, not, that should not influence us on how we are to relate in the body of Christ. There are different opinions on the relationship of God's sovereignty and human responsibility that we will still be debating until Jesus comes back. Emphasis on the freedom of the will of man. How is it free? Where is it free? What, what is freedom of will? Is there a free will? Do we really have a free will? Different perspectives on those, but those are secondary. And through these, the church is to maintain unity, and we find that in Ephesians 4. Doctrine helps us stay unified. Keeping the essential things essential helps that unification. But humility is crucial. Humility is crucial with understanding that in the secondary things, we just don't know. And being okay with not knowing all the details. What we are convinced of is what we do know the most about, and that is salvation through Christ alone. But when we get into these secondary things and they become primary for us, I think that's what leads to vain discussions and confident assertions. No, 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 God's really going to do this. We can't say that. But doctrine's important. Because listen, as we study doctrine, it leads us to worship God. That's the purpose of doctrine. That's the fruit of doctrine. First is a faithful stewardship. Paul says, look, rather, rather than all these things with the myths and endless genealogies and speculations, how about this? Steward. Steward what you're called to do by faith. God wants us to be faithful stewards of that gospel in order to share it with others so they will believe it and be saved. We are not called to go where no man has gone before. It's not, that's Captain Kirk. We don't do that as Christians. We orbit the singular most glorious being in all of everything. We orbit, orbit God as Father and Son and Spirit and He welcomes us into that and we, we delve into the mystery that is, it is mysterious and we should be drawn to it. And there's a faithfulness about that. There's a stewardship about that. But the result is this. God welcomes us into that so we experience his joy with him as being God. And our response is worship. In the book of Romans, Paul spends almost 11 chapters on doctrine. And it's thick doctrine. It's the essential doctrines. It's the trustworthy sayings. He spends 11 chapters on that. The book's only 16 chapters long. But he gets to, and he didn't write chapters. We have that just for the sake of understanding. It's most of the book. He gets to this point. He's finished all of the doctrine. And he says this, oh, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. That's how all of us should sound. When we think about God. When we wonder about who he is. When we're asking questions of other people. And, and how, how do you, what's your experience with God? And what's your story of his saving grace in your own heart? Listen, when that happens, what wells up in us is I love God. And I want to worship him. Listen, our worship times, we, I've said this before, we sing songs that are, they got doctrine in them. 
So we're going deep, we're holding our breath, going deep in the pool, but we're coming back up. Maybe, all right, I'm treading a little bit. Let me go to the shallow end. Just do a chorus. I love how we paused earlier, and the Lord led Mark to do that. Let's sing this until it's, we're convinced. We need that. But God wants us to stay right there. And he wants us with childlike faith to say this again, again, again. And we will never tire. Most importantly, he will never tire on giving us himself more and more and more. So we rehearse the gospel. We don't wander far from the cross. We don't wander because I'm at a loss for words. I speak for a living and I can't figure out the words. Because it's, oh, we feel and search God until we have that oh the depth and the glory and God you called me to that I worship you I worship you God thank you thank you for a power that we can't comprehend a joy that's everlasting and filled with glory it's inexpressible but God, what we need right now is, is not a mental convincing. What we need right now is an experience that gets our hearts with you to where we stay and we feel it and we know it. God, thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for the song that you sing over us. And thank you for the gift of song that we sing to you as a response to all that you have done to save us keep us and to use us in your mission of exalting Jesus. We love you. We worship you, God. We worship you. Let's stand.